and good evening, baseball fans, and welcome to episode one of the Diamond Digest podcast. My name is Jordan Lazowski. I'm your host for this podcast, and I speak for all of us when I say we are absolutely thrilled to finally be bringing our content to you through the airwaves. But before we begin, I'm going to let these fine gentlemen on the podcast with me introduce themselves. Um, I'm Adam Koplick. I'm a sophomore in upstate New York. I'm a diehard Yankees fan, and uh, I'm a big fan of all the stats, but I really don't have a specific favorite. And yeah. Hey everyone, I'm Evan Alvarez. I graduated from Indiana University in May of 2017, so go Hoosiers. I'm a Philadelphia native, but um, a New York Mets fan at heart, just growing up. But I, I just really appreciate MLB-wide analysis. I love digging deep into stats and, and really just trying to find the root cause, trying to find some cool stuff. Um, and I'm looking forward to talking about that today and into the future as well. All right. Well, my name is Senator Jennings. I live in Raleigh, North Carolina, but I'm a Red Sox fan at heart. Um, I, like I said, I'm a Red Sox fan at heart, and um, I'll go ahead and I'll be writing about the Red Sox as well as the Rays, and as well as just any general MLB news that comes around. Um, as for stats-wise, anyways, um, I'm, a lot, I'm a lot like Evan. I'll go for any stat. I have no preference for either one. I'll dig for stats whenever. All right, I'm Jordan. My name is Jordan Lewin-Skaversky. I am a Phillies fan at heart, but I love MLB-wide analysis, and I write about that, and I am a big believer in the war stat and the weighted runs created stat. And I live right – I'm a junior in high school, and I live right outside the Philadelphia area. And as I said before, my name is Jordan Lazowski. I'm a math major who is heading into his final semester at Notre Dame. I'm a diehard White Sox fan from just outside Chicago, and I do not tolerate Lucas Giolito slander. <laughs> but enough about the boring nerds on our podcast tonight. Let's talk about this offseason so far. The talk of the offseason thus far has been the Mariners tearing it down and starting a rebuild just after winning close to about 90 games last year. They've seen James Paxson, Cano, Diaz, and Segura all depart in a short amount of time to various teams. So fellas, let's break these trades down one at a time. And we'll start with the first one. We'll go with James Paxton. Paxton was traded to the Yankees for Justice Sheffield, Eric Swanson, and Dom Thompson-Williams. So, let's start there. What does this trade mean for the Yankees? Did the M's get enough in return? Let's talk about it a little bit. Um, I'm not the Yankees guy, so I may be a little biased, but I think the Yankees stole this trade from the Mariners, honestly. I think Paxton, like, when he's had a lot of injury issues, that's for sure. But when he's been healthy, he's been a borderline ace for sure. Last year, his home runs per nine did go up, which is scary to see, especially going to a more hitter's park in Yankee Stadium. But his case per nine was at a career high. And he just, like, when he he has the potential, which is the same as Luis Severino and Masahiro Tanaka, to just go out one day and be an ace. And I think that the Yankees are getting a very underrated rotation entering next year, especially once they add another pitcher that we all know they're going to. Yeah, I mean, I'm in agreement with that. And 
personally, I think that while James Paxton, Paxton is good, what it allowed the Yankees to do is it allowed them to focus elsewhere in free agency instead of it being Patrick Corbin or Bust, and they ended up Corbin signed with the Nationals after many disbelief thought he would go to the Yankees or even the Phillies who were rumored to off, offer the most money. But once again, Paxton has been good. Last year, he had a 4.6 war and 136 innings. If he can just if he can increase his durability by just a little bit longer, which the Yankees were, the Yankees have the uh, have their starters throw the lowest fastball rate in baseball, and Paxton had won the high highest. So if he can maybe lower that, get some more strikeouts, and maybe add get his innings up to 175, he could be looking at a six to seven war pitcher in the ace. Yo, so actually, Jordan, I, I think that's a great point about the fastball usage. And I think Paxton fits in perfectly in that sense because he has a dynamite cutter. His cutter generated the lowest ex-WOBA in all of baseball, and it, but it, it didn't have the best usage. It, it's, it's looking like he used his cutter 14% of the time in 2018. But if he can increase that and maybe decrease his four-seam usage, as you mentioned, Jordan, that could be just really good for the Yankees because his cutter is one of the best in baseball. And the return that the Mariners got, I don't think it's that bad. You know, Justice Sheffield is a top 100 prospect. A lot of people are very high on righty Eric Swanson, who put up great AAA stats. And I think that this could work out for the Mariners. You know, Paxton's 30 years old. And, you know, I see some upside. Yeah, it's like going back to what you said about the return to the guy. Getting Sheffield for Paxton was probably the biggest part of that trade. Uh, I think there just wasn't enough space in the um, either the bullpen or rotation, wherever Sheffield was going to be with the Yankees. Uh, with the Mariners, I could see him being a back-end starter, maybe middle of the rotation, uh, to back up someone like Gonzalez and be ahead of Felix Hernandez. Um, as for Swanson, I can see him being as like a middle reliever, I don't think there's going to be much in turn of him um, really becoming a setup guy or a closer at any chance. And then uh, Dom Thompson-Williams, that's going to be more of just like your bench option for outfield, if anything. But um, going back to what you said also about the cutter, um, I brought up his fangraph splits. Um, I'm looking at um, the slash line that he did have on that cutter out of the 560 he did throw. Um, I mean, he did his last night was 235, 242, and 403, which um, that's easily the highest on his in his career. When I'm looking at his 2017, it was a 144, 188, 234. So, but it, even then, he can still if he, if he uses that pitch more, he could definitely be um, incredibly dangerous. And of course, if he can keep if he can stay healthy as well, that'd be a big key for the Yankees as well. Not. No. This is the uh, this is the part of the podcast where Adam sits there and pretends he didn't want Patrick Corbin uh, because he's a Yankees fan. So, but, but let's talk about because something Adam said right at the beginning was they're still going to be looking for another rotation arm. Adam, where do you think they go now that Corbin's been signed and you've got Paxton? You're still looking at another arm for sure. The safe money's hat, like he was. Great for them last year, besides the game one start against Boston, obviously. But he he was consistent. For, once they got him from the Blue Jays, he was great for the entire second half of the year. I don't think he got a loss until the playoffs. But the like 
There are dark horse options, obviously. A Kluber is very unlikely. Mad Bum, I don't think the Yankees will pay that price. Then a guy like Trevor Bauer, Carlos Carrasco, which I, I think I would go after Carrasco if I was Brian Cashman, but I'm not. So that, that is also kind of unlikely. I don't see the Indians talking with the Yankees just because I, I don't think they want to face these guys in the AL all the time for years because there's a lot of control that they'd be trading. But I would say Hap is probably the, the um, safe bet, though Dallas Keuchel or while Nathan Evaldi is probably going to go back to the Red Sox, he, there's always that chance. I think it's Hap and maybe Dallas Keuchel, but that would be – I think that he's going to get a lot of money that the Yankees may not want to pay. I mean, Jay Hap – over the last four years, ever since um, 2014, it's really been like a model of consistency. And I mean, God knows the Yanks need that in the rotation after the Sonny Gray fiasco, the Severino inconsistencies. I mean, he's really, you can mark him down for 170 innings or so, three and a half ERA. He'll get the job done, but there's other playoff teams that are going to want Hap, and I think the Yankees may be stuck going into the rotation without Hap if they don't get to sign him and maybe they're going to have to look at Keuchel and maybe it was their fourth or fifth option heading into the year because teams such as the Brewers or Phillies who really don't have left-handed starting pitching could be looking at J.A. Hap and say, hey, this guy, we know what he gets, we know what he's going to give us, and he's going to help our team next year. And I think the Yankees might not be the only one who want that. Well, let's take a look at the Phillies now too, as you mentioned. Because you're, this is a team that might be looking for an arm, and we know that they traded Gene, for Gene Segura from the Mariners once again. This was in return, or the Mariners in return got Carlos Santana and J.P. Crawford. So you give up a shortstop, you get another one. Jordan, talk about that trade a little bit. Maybe how it makes sense for the Phillies, and you know, as you were saying, as a team that's looking for an arm now as well, did this trade make sense at this time? Did you maybe want to use these resources elsewhere? So, yeah. So, on August 5th last year, the Philadelphia Phillies were first place, second best record in the National League, and all hell broke loose. Nobody has any... I have no idea what happened to them. They fell off the face of the earth. But you know what they did? They had a 14-win improvement. Even if they fell off, they had... Five starting pitchers that all made at least 24 games started, four over yeah. 30, Arietta Eflin, Velasquez, Pavetta, and Nola. And while they had the worst defense of all time, I, I think that's probably fair to say. I'm pretty Looking sure that's in, accurate, too. <laughs> I saw a Fangraph's article, yeah. I'm pretty sure it's accurate. <laughs> They're looking to improve it literally every single position going into next year for the playoff push, especially when you got the Braves, the Mets, which we're going to talk about in a few minutes, and the Nationals now re-signing Corbin. The Phillies know they have to make moves fast and soon, especially with Goldschmidt now coming off the market and the no need for a first baseman. So Gene Segura really brings brings to the table a bat to get on base to start off the game. He brings some defense, base running. And what he does is J.P. Crawford and Carlos Santana. Well, let's start with Crawford. Crawford never really... He never really took his chance by the head. He was kind of just 
he was a top prospect a few years ago, but he's really had a rough couple years since probably 2016 or so. And he just was not moving at the rate the Phillies needed to to contend in 2019. And Carlos Santana, while he, after April, he had a relatively decent hitting season for his standards, you know, 360, 370 OBP. He never really fit with the Phillies because their franchise play right now, their best hitter, Reese Hoskins, was being blocked because he was an everyday first baseman in the minors as a kid. And now he's being forced to play left field in the hardest into the hardest baseball league in the world and as a rocket scientist could have probably told you before the year he was not very good in left field i agree with that and like you said about him going back to first base that's a big move for the phillies in my mind because um when you look at his stats i'm going to bring him up real quick his defensive stats were not good at all in left field and i mean i feel like if you're looking to try and get something out of Hoskins next year, it's going to be at first base no matter what. Um, and then, of course, when you go on to J.B. Crawford, I, I kind of felt like he was a little blocked in Philly just with um, – because I remember Freddie Galvis was involved in it. There's a couple others as well. Um, and But he never really took his chance by the horns. It it kind of faltered a little bit. He's got the bus label to him now. Um, but personally, now he's in Seattle – He's uncontested for that shortstop spot now. Um, the only other competition he has from death charts from the looks of it is Christopher Negron, and he's a 32-year-old utility man, basically. Um, so he's going to go in as the everyday shortstop here for the Mariners. So he's got a chance to finally prove his worth, I feel like. Um, this is probably the change of scenery that he needed to finally break, break out like he was supposed to and be the top prospect he was meant to be. Yes, I agree completely, Tyler. And I don't think the Mariners are getting enough credit for the return that they got in this trade. As you said, J.P. Crawford is a former, honestly, top five prospect. I think he was ranked number two or three at one point behind Yohan Mankata back in the day. And, you know, he's really only logged. Let me see. Um, he's only logged about 70 games of MLB experience. And in 2018, he had a 96 weighted run created plus. Obviously, that's below average, but he'll enter his age 24 season. He's a shortstop. He has the pedigree. And as you mentioned, Tyler, he has a role of his own now in the change of scenery. And I think it could really work out for them. Um, you know, Seattle also freed up some money. I think they're doing you know, about as well as you could for a rebuild right now. And uh, I'm a pretty big fan of this trade on both sides. Yeah. I mean, not only to, about the first base, Reese Hoskins last year in close to 1,200 innings in left field had a negative 24 defensive run saved. And in the back to his rookie season last year, 2017, in about 200 innings at first base, he had a zero defensive run save, which is, it's not on the positive side, but it's not negative. So he's, he's giving you pretty much average first base defense while you're improving the defense at shortstop, you're improving the defense at left field, and you're really improving the bats all around the diamond too. Um, my, only, the only, my only disagreement with you, Evan, is that I think Segura was a very valuable player. He's, he can field, he can hit for contact. He's a great leadoff guy. So I think... Getting Crawford with how much his value has plummeted for sure is nice. But taking Carlos Santana's contract back, I don't I think is a big miss for them. 
especially with how much money they've been trying to free up. But while they've been trying to free up this money, they've been taking back a lot, which is not the best ingredients for a rebuild. Obviously, it's the very beginning of a rebuild, and Jerry Depoto says that really just tearing down a team takes years. So they're getting good framework, but I don't like taking back so much money in the Cano and the um, no, sure. Santana. Oh, sorry. No, feel free. Okay. Um, so I was going to say, I, I, I don't think that um, Carlos, there's a chance Carlos Santana doesn't start the, start the year with the Mariners. I think he has potential to be flipped. I saw Jay Bruce could be flipped going from the Mets to the Mariners. Swarzak could be flipped. Swarzak was flipped, right, in the, uh, in the Phillies deal. Um, no, that, no, he that wasn't. Was, that's right. No, that, that was Pezos. That was, that was Pezos. Pezos. Yeah. Um, and Nicasio, I think. Yeah, too. you're right. Um, but I heard rumors that Swarzak could be a part of it. And I know that it's, Seattle's not done flipping these guys and there's, um, a chance that they'll still rework the money. But I, I do agree with you, Adam, in that they are taking along a little bit. Um, but I think it'll pay off in the long run. They're still getting some depth, especially since they were the literal worst farm system in baseball. And now they're trying to grow. I don't, adding on to Adam's point about the Mariners returning these deals, I feel like while they got a decent return in some respects, there was still a lot left on the table. I mean, for instance, just look at the Edwin Diaz and Gene Segura. There are rumors that the Phillies were offering the Phillies were offering Sixto Sanchez, a top fifteen prospect in all of baseball, for not only Segura but you add Diaz in there who. While he's a good reliever, he's probably one of the best in baseball, it's still a relief pitcher on a rebuilding team. And if you ask me, I would rather have six, though, than Carlos Santana, who they either are going to flip and going to have to eat money, or, I mean, J.P. Crawford, who, while he's a good prospect and I think he could turn out well for them, only has one more year of team control as opposed to Gene Segura. So really... If they trade Santana, they're really just giving up Segura for um, Crawford straight up. And most likely at this current juncture in time, Crawford's 99th percentile ceiling is wait, 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 Segura. Hold on. Uh, Crawford has team control through 2024. Yeah, but Gene Segura, I think, has it through 20. He's, uh, it's 2023. He's 22 with a 23-team option. Yeah, so that's it's only one more yeah, year. Yeah, so, for... so you're, you're paying for youth and you're paying for development and for cheap cost. I do think that what Evan you mentioned it, the relievers going to Philly are kind of just being looked over. Like Pazos and Nicasio, especially Pazos who's 27, they've they've had great years last. Well, not Nicasio as much as Pazos. Pazos had a 2.88 last year after a 3.86 the year before, which I mean that's not elite, but what they got from the Yankees for like what they traded to the Yankees for him, which was I don't I think him I think it was just a forty man get rid of this guy for the Yanks, and to so I don't that's another guy I don't like the Mariners putting in that trade because I think he could be part of the future too. Yeah, and I'm I'm gonna go to Pezos here because I just brought up um I'm looking at the splits that he had for you mentioned the two A ERA that's I mean for a reliever that's pretty good. Um, but I'm looking further into it. He's got a 360 FIP, and then, of course, the XFIP itself is 415. So there's regression there. Um, whether or not that's going to take full effect, uh, 
that's still yet to be determined, obviously. But um, he did cut down on his walks. It was at 402 with the 2017, and then it was 270 in 2018. But his K per nine also went down almost almost three um, percentage points. Basically, it was a 10-9, and that went down to an 8-1. So, um, I mean, he's still a sneakily good lefty option now of the pen, but there's also got to be the question mark surrounding him, his ability to keep that form up throughout the year. Yeah, for sure, Tyler. And on that note of the stats that you mentioned, his hard contact rate also rose by 8% along with those metrics that you mentioned. So uh, what do we think about the uh, Met side of the Robinson Cano and Edmund Diaz deals? Yes, that is right. So um, the when was this? On December 1st, uh, I think December 1st it was official, but it was going around forever. Um, yeah, so the, the Mets and Mariners had a trade. They sent Edwin Diaz, Robinson Cano, and $20 million to the Mets. In return, the Mariners got um, Anthony Swarzak, Jay Bruce, Gershon Batista, and top 100 prospects, the Mets number three and number four, respectively, Jared Kelnick and Justin Dunn. Um, and honestly, I think I think it's a pretty good trade for both teams. Uh, I'm still trying to ingest this fully and, and weigh everything. And obviously, we won't know for a couple of years because Kelnick could be a star. He could bust. Justin Dunn could be a Cy Young winner. He could bust. Who knows? Um but overall, I think the Mets are trying to embrace this full win-now mode, and I think that getting a top-three reliever in baseball certainly helps. I think getting Robinson Cano certainly helps. His bat's still there, at least, and it remains to be seen how this will go, but it doesn't sound like the Mets are done either, so we'll see. So, so you're fine with them taking that win-now approach in the division they're in right now, is what you're saying? It's, it's tough. But if we don't do it now, then we're just going to be mediocre again or we go for the rebuild route, which I don't think we should do because we have a great pitching staff. We have young players like Nimmo, Conforto, McNeil, and I think that this is our best avenue, a win-now approach. We we can't keep waiting for prospects, especially when Kelnick's going to be ready in maybe 2021, 22. Um so this is probably the best avenue moving forward, and I'm excited to see some free agent signings and more trades that we make. I know we're looking at AJ Pollock. I know we're looking at JT Realmuto. So who knows? Now, Evan, pose the hypothetical question. I know in one of the my first article for Diamond Digest. Now, I think the opening the opening line was I was arguing that why the Mets should trade Jacob Degrom Jacob Degrom at this year's trade trading deadline because. For instance, like the Mets, while sure they have some nice young pieces, I thought it might be in their best interest to not maybe not so much as go to a complete rebuild, but trade those 31-year-old DeGroms and trade those, not those Robinson Canoes because they wouldn't have had him, but trade those Cespedes, get whatever you can for him, and then in 2020 – when those guys are ready and Syndergaard's at his prime still, and then, and then you get the high draft picks from not being good, I would have rather done that personally. And I mean, as a person who's a Sixers fan and yourself, you've learned to trust the process for years. So how can can you justify the Mets not trusting the process and going for it right now with a new GM, or 
do you think it would have been smarter to rebuild and not overreact such as the Padres did a few years back when they tried to go for it all in one offseason with new GM AJ Preller? So a few things to that. Um, one, in basketball, it's much easier to rebuild than in baseball and to trust the process and to tank. Um, two, very, very difficult to do what the Houston Astros have done, what the LA – actually, the Dodgers never did this, but the, the Houston Astros are a very good example of the, – the, the Cubs, exactly. It's very difficult to do that. You have to hit on these prospects. You have to spend correctly. You have to do everything correctly and get it right, and then maybe you win a World Series. The Mets – have this foundation already. DeGrom is 30 and regression might not be there into maybe his age 35 season. Justin Verlander's 35. He's killing it right now. If DeGrom is as good as Verlander was when Verlander was 30, maybe at 35, he's pitching like Verlander is now. That's something that you can hope for. You have Syndergaard who can grow. You have Wheeler who discovered um, a new way to pitch this year, so he's killing it. And I think that the pieces are there. You have young guys who can grow, like Ahmed Rosario. You have Brandon Nimmo, who had a breakout season. And you have Peter Alonzo in the pipeline. I think we could be primed for a run, and I think that trading a key piece would be a mistake right now, unless something horrible were to happen and that was our only option. You know, at last year's deadline, I was – I mean – I, I, w- I thought that it would, would have been a good idea for the Mets to trade DeGrom just because how I viewed it was that this was a just a bad team. But, like, when you really look at it, they were – if you if that Mets team is healthy, which never happens for the Mets, but if they were healthy, they're a contender for that division without a doubt. So I'd like them going for it because, one, I don't remember the last time that the Mets have just said – we're just going to go for it. Like, they shouldn't just give up on the future and just trade everyone. Like, I saw, like, Nimmo was one of the guys that could move, they could move in the Real Muto trade, and I wouldn't do something like that. But I do think that I like the Diaz and Cano deal because I think Cano is a bat who, in three, four years, it's going to be a gigantic overpay. But for the next couple of years, I think he could be a good bat in the middle of the lineup. Diaz is an elite closer, and that rotation, that one, two, three of DeGrom, Syndergaard, Wheeler, who was great last year, Mats, who has shown flashes, they can really do damage, though it is in a great division that's going to be very competitive. 57 games of competitive yeah, division Yeah, it's going to be fun. You know, there, there's something I want to touch on the Cano thing, um, because I brought up the uh, stats that he had post-suspension, where he was suspended the 80 games mm-hmm. for the PED violation. Um, of course, you're, he still has the bat. He's, he hit 317, um, six home runs, 27 RBIs, 40 games, uh, 41 games, actually. Um, but then you got to think about he's still got five years left on the contract. And then, of course, you got to look how he just turned 36 um, about a month and a half ago. You're going to run into the problem where age is going to be an issue, and you're probably going to look at um, his ability to be, you know, stay in the field or even be a good base runner, which I don't, I don't even think he was to begin with. Um, but when you start going into his like age 38, age 39 seasons, you're going to start looking at him uh, regressing somewhat. But um, I feel like that's a game where you take now, especially with, like you said, Peter Alonso's coming up here shortly. Um, probably going to take over for Dom Smith. I don't know what they're going to do with Dom Smith here. Um, but when it comes to 
Diaz, you got probably one of the better closers, if not the best closer on the market. And then, of course, you know, you have him there, and he still continues the 2017 form that, he, or not 2017, uh, 2018 form that he had. You know, hey, keep him there. You're probably looking at his, um, probably a good deal there when you consider that Kimbrell's looking for a six year deal. Um, you got other closers that are out there. Zach Britton's probably looking for a, a pretty lengthy um, deal as well. So you're probably better off having made the deal for Diaz, and you could probably, you know, bolster the bullpen a little bit as well. But I feel like um, one of the things that would probably be done in terms of uh, trying to keep a stable infield in the future is probably McNeil, Alonzo, what you would probably end up doing with Dom Smith in the future here. Um, To your point, Tyler, like the con- – Cano deal is for the next couple of years, I think. Because, like, the, the Mets win now mode is not going to stretch, I don't think, into the mid 2020s. I think it's going to be 2019, 2020. And then if they didn't win, they may, I could see them going to a teardown. Like, I would be surprised if Cano finishes out his deal with the Mets. I think you either see a, like, a buyout of sorts or a, trade where the Mets eat some of the deal, which the Wilpons hate doing, but I could still see happening. Yeah. Just, I think that Cano is going to be a quality hitter for a couple of years, but if you're the Mets, you can't let him block some of the really good infield talents, like you said, that they have in their system. Yeah, and I, I'm actually going to take a look back at the Mets' um, farm system here. Uh, I know Cano usually is a second baseman by trade. He has played first base before. Of course, you got Pete Alonso there. I feel like he will more than likely make his debut uh, early this upcoming year. Well, I'm I'm looking down, yeah, and then like I'm looking. Um, Gavin Shachini is the top second baseman and under top thirty, according to MLB.com right now. But then they got Luis Carpio, Gregory Guerrero. Um, then you go down even farther. You got Luis Santana. And then, of course, you got a chance of Luis Guillorme if he happens to um, have to move from shortstop. So you, he's that's just um, yeah. Keep an eye out on the you've just coming up. I feel like Alonso's definitely gonna be the first baseman here within a year or two to lead this team offensively. Could be, yeah. I guess we'll see. Well, there's a lot of a lot of time left, but uh... you know what I find fascinating though is um. After last year, which you could make a great case that the NL East was the worst division in baseball. I mean, you have the Nat, the Nationals, who were probably the biggest disappointment of the year. The Marlins, who were probably one of the worst teams of the year with the Orioles and Royals. The Phillies, who had one of the worst endings of the year. Braves were a 500 team while playing the rest of the major leagues when they were not playing the Mets and Marlins. And so from going from that really bad division last year to one of the new in 2019. I feel like we could go from one of the worst to best, and that would be good to see for fans. Let's stay in the NL East and move away from some of the trades that have been happening and look at a signing we've mentioned several times tonight, Patrick Corbin to the Nationals when most expected him to go to the Yankees. Oh, I love this signing, Jordan. I absolutely love it. You know what? 
The Washington Nationals are my sleeper team. I know I'm a Mets fan, and I'm not supposed to like the Nationals, but I'm a baseball fan too. And the Nationals are goddamn exciting this year. They have Juan Soto in left, Victor Robles in center. People forget about Victor Robles. He's a top five prospect. He's a beast. Adam Eaton, if he stays healthy, that's a big if, but you know he's a monster as well. Trey Turner, Anthony Rendon, who's one of the most underrated players in all of baseball. He's a tank. And you have one of the best pitching staffs in baseball now with Patrick Corbin. You need a you need to sure up your bullpen, but you got Jan Gomes, who can hopefully help the pitching staff. He's a very he's a very good defensive catcher, very good offensive catcher. And the Nationals are primed to surprise people, even without Bryce Harper. I think they could be better. It's a stretch, but I think they could. And I'm pretty damn excited about the Washington Nationals. So we think they're closing the door on Harper, is what we're saying here. I'd be very surprised, yeah. While the Nationals are in Washington, D.C., it's not like D.C. is the biggest market in the world and having to go over the luxury tax to bring back, even as guys, a franchise icon like Harper, I think going over the luxury tax for owners like in that state that are not Yankees or not Red Sox or not Dodgers or not Phillies, I feel like I I just don't see it happening. So the signing of Corbin meant that they could lock up somebody 100%, know they improve their team for next year, not have to wait till possibly the end of January for Harper and then be stuck with the leftovers from everybody that teams didn't want. Yeah, and I, and I want to go back to what you said about the luxury tax. I think the there was two teams last year that actually went over the luxury tax. I know one of them was Boston. I can't remember if the second one was Washington. I think the Giant. Was, was was it Washington? The, I no, it was, it was, it was Washington. Yeah, I think it was Washington. Cause Let I'm, me see. You, you look at what it looks like now. The top three, you got Scherzer, Strasburg, and Corbin. Within those three, you have $525 million total between those three guys. Because Scherzer's at 210, you got 175 for Strasburg. Now you got 140 on top of that to go to Corbin. But like a, like y'all were saying, that's a top three head of the rotation is looking extremely you know nasty because you know Max Scherzer just he's probably one of the best, if not the best pitcher in the National League. Um, Very durable, too. Oh, I, yeah. And then, of course, Strasburg, he's got his injury problems, but at the same time, when he's on, he is lights out. There's no doubt For about sure. it. Then you got Corbin coming in. He's got probably one of the best sliders in all of baseball. And I know me and Evan were talking about it last night when I was doing the write-up for it. Um, I think you said something about his out-of-the-zone was the lowest in his career, and it... Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, he, he was throwing a slider out of the zone or his, his zone percentage, which is the amount of times that he throws a specific pitch inside of the strike zone. It was the lowest of his career. So that means that his slider was tailing out of the zone, which means it's really nasty and pitchers or, or and batters don't see it very well. So it's, it's, it's pretty interesting for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I'm going to go ahead and say it cause I, that whole city itself is hers. I mean, you look at the wizards, you look at the capitals, the capitals just won the Stanley cup. Of course, I don't know if this is always going to translate over to any other, you know, sports club in the city. But you got a chance here with what the Nationals have done. They just, it was like watch. it reminded me of Granky a couple years ago when it looked like it would be either Giants or Dodgers and then the Arizona just swooped in last moment to try and steal them. And while Washington didn't swoop in like Arizona did, I think most of us could easily say that Washington was number three on our list. It was either... 
Yankees were first or Phillies were first. And when the Yankees were out, every single one of us probably went ahead and said Phillies. Um, then, of course, the Phillies didn't go the sixth year that Corbin wanted, like the Yankees did. And then, of course, um, Nationals didn't. They got the sixth year on him, and they ended up getting him in the end. Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree. I know Adam, the Yan- he was a Yankees fan, mentioned it earlier, either on the podcast or on his own Twitter. But I also have, I've had similar thoughts with him in terms of, personally, I would not have paid Patrick Corbin six years. I understand the reasoning to do it, and I understand the reasoning to go get a good pitcher, a left-handed pitcher. But to pay for a guy who's really had one ace-like year to pay, to reset the market for a, uh, a pitcher like that, personally, I would not have done that. But I understand why the Nationals did it. But once again, you look at just the National League landscape right now. You have the four NL East teams. You have the Dodgers, Rockies, Cubs, Brewers, and another team, the Cardinals, who just upgraded their first base in a big way today. Yeah, I was just going to say, you know what? You sound like a salty Phillies fan now. Who thought he was signing the entire uh, yeah, free agent I've been watching still. the webcam slowly. I see, I see people just like losing, slowly losing their mind right I now. I do. While we're talking about this. Yeah, between Adam and... Uh, would I have liked Adam him? and Jordan, we got a lot of salt. Oh, I didn't want him at the end of the day anyway. <laughs> would I have liked him? Would I have liked him? Yes. <laughs> would he have been a good pitcher? Yes. Am I terribly upset that he's not a Philly and we didn't pay him $140 million? Absolutely not. Am I sad that we're going to have to face him probably five to six times a year? Yes. But in a few years down the road, with the money flexibility, the Phillies still have to go pursue Harper, Trout. Uh, here Bumbard, we go. Here, Granky, here's the part where they're signing any the, one of the rest Indians of pitchers. the free agents. The yeah. Infinity Gauntlet. You got the Thumb. You got Harper. You got the uh, what? Index Finger, Machado. You got your Middle Finger. You got Bumgarner. You got your. Um, fourth your ring finger you got the indians pitchers and your fifth finger you got mike trout who will always be there and will end the infinity gauntlet in two years i mean side note i was at the philadelphia eagles washington redskins game monday night football and reese hoskins aaron nola were there mike trout was also there they were pictured having a little powwow getting to talk to each other i don't know tampering is illegal but I would have done some tampering if I were them. All right, I'm an AL Central guy. I'm tired of talking about the Eastern Division. Let's move to the Central. Let's wrap up this crazy start to our hot stove and talk about Paul Goldschmidt, who goes to the Cardinals today for Luke Weaver, Carson Kelly, Andy Young, and a 2019 competitive balance round B pick. So we're Am I talking... the only one who had no idea you could yeah, trade those? I... Yeah, I had no clue. I actually do remember that now that I look back on it because I remember when I first saw it, I was I, I was like you guys I had no idea. Then I remembered I think a trade between the Orioles and the Braves a couple years ago ha- involved one of those compensation picks. I looked back into it. Those are the compensation balance picks are the only ones you can physically trade because um, I I guess it's just some weird rule they have in there somewhere. Um, but in terms of the other part of the deal, I feel like it's an even deal for both teams. Um, of course, St. Louis gets their prize for spaceman for the year. But at the same time, they also gave up a lot of talent to go with it. Mm-hmm. If you look at it, Luke Weaver and Carson Kelly, um, 
you know, both former top prospects in, within the organization. I think Carson Kelly was a top 20, top 30 guy in MLB, if I remember correctly. Probably close, yeah. Yeah. So whenever I look at that, you're looking at people or players that are going to get a change of scenery. I feel like Weaver was definitely one of those players. Uh, Kelly's going to have a chance to be maybe even the everyday catcher now in, in Arizona because um, I think Jeff Mathis is now gone. And if I look at the depth charts here, um, the catching spot is John Ryan Murphy and Alex Avila. So they could definitely have him... Um, I think Avila is a free agent in the year, and they can have uh, Kelly as a backup if they want to um, try and get him some more seasoning in there, and he'll probably be an everyday catcher within a year. Um, that's my thoughts on that, personally. I think it's interesting to see the change in dynamic between this offseason and last offseason. You're seeing a lot more teams try this win-now mode type deal they got going on. And a lot of it has to do with the difference in the free agent class. Whether it's teams har- targeting Harper or Machado, or just the general quantity pool of players being better this offseason. I think this whole fear a lot of agents had last offseason of the analytics nerds taking over the front office, it was more about in anticipation of this offseason where it was just so much better quality talent that was up for grabs. And I think now this is... This is definitely a win-now type oh. move for the Cardinals in a division mm-hmm. where the oh, Cubs and Brewers oh, yeah, are stacked. without doubt. And then, of course, they, they've been raving about this free agency class for God, years, ever since 2015, which is probably the most notable and I can remember recent memory. Um, of course, it's, it doesn't look as hyped up as it, it was, um, but it's still, all in all, a very good free agent class, and I feel like... With that said, the trade market is also going to be just as volatile. I mean, we see it with Goldschmidt. I mean, he's got a year left in free agency, like I said. But, I mean, that's a very, very big move, and especially with the Brewers on the upswing. you still got the Cubs being contenders in the NL Central. Um, that That's going to be a move that will make or break their 2018 season, I feel like, um, just based on, you know, how I, how, how I feel at the present time right now. I like this deal for the Cardinals. I mean, you could, while while you just said it was a make or break situation, I think it's more just of a make situation. Because remember, next year, let's say Goldschmidt walks because he gets a higher offer somewhere else, wants to go somewhere else. You still got one year of a top 15 hitter in baseball for a catcher who was blocked by somebody else and who had disappointing year this year, and for a pitcher who also had a fairly disappointing year and was going to be tough to slot in your rotation because you have other guys. So you really traded him for two guys that aren't dead set in your future plans. And Paul Goldschmidt, I mean, this guy had his worst on-base percentage of his in the last six years this past year in 2018 at a 390 average, at a 390 mark. I mean, as his worst year in six years, that's a high hit and just scrolling down here on a fan graphs, his hard contact percentage, which another one of my favorite stats, 46%. I mean, that's almost half the amount he's hitting. It is a hard line drive. I mean, that's an elite hitter right there for really not much. And the Cardinals did this before with Matt holiday, got him to resign long-term. So I think it was a win for them. The, Goldschmidt deal, which people, need, which we need to look at too, not us right now, but 
it opens Jose Martinez to be moved because Jose Martinez, who I think is one of the best bats, one of the best young, not young, but he's one of the most underrated bats in baseball, I think. But his fielding is just so bad that he cannot, he can't play on an NL team unless it's at first and and Goldschmidt is a gold glove first baseman. So I think that the Goldschmidt deal opens him up to be moved. So the Cardinals will – they're definitely not done. They'll have a busy offseason after this. Yeah, and I mean, we've seen a busy offseason already, and what better time to start thinking about how busy it can get than just a few days before the winter meetings. So as many of you might know, the winter meetings are coming up this coming week, the 9th to the 13th. And in order for us not to steal too much from our After the Winter Meetings podcast – we're going to rapid fire through some predictions up here. So, let's start with this one. Who gets signed? Harper, Machado, both, or neither? Evan? Wait, wait. wait is it, uh, so, so are, are you saying between 9 and 13 of December? Yeah, winter meetings. N- neither. Jordan? Neither. Machado signed soon after that, in my opinion. Tyler? Neither. I'm the same way with Jordan. I feel like Machado's going to sign first, not too long after. And Adam? Machado. Ooh. Ooh. I like it. Who's he going to? And don't say Yankees. No, I think he's going to go – he's either going to go to the Yankees, Phillies, or White City Sox. City of brotherly it's love. It's a very broad Ooh. prediction, but I think that it gets done in Vegas and they just – they don't let he does not leave there with a contract without a contract. Ooh, I like that. All right. What other big name falls at the winter meetings other than Harper and Machado? What's the biggest name we got going? We'll start with Adam. Adam? Uh yeah. Madbum. Madbum. Tyler. Um, I'm I'm personally gonna go with Keiko here. Jordan. Um, I'm going to say either um, Trevor Bauer or Madison Bumgarner. And Evan. I'm going to go with A.J. Pollock or Adam Odovino. All right. Who is most active at the winter meetings? Which team? Let's go. Jerry DePoto. Yeah. <laughs> That's always a good cop-out. I do think the Yankees will be very, will be very active. Just... Aaron Boone said today that they will be making a lot of moves. Uh, I think the Mariners, he's going to keep that rebuild going for sure. I, I think a lot of teams are going to be active. Just It's a very it's a very fast-paced offseason this year, so I think you can't be late to it. Tyler. I, I feel like personally on the trade front side, we're going to be looking at Seattle still being busy because they, they still have Kyle Seeger and um, you know, Mitch Henniger to lay off here. And I feel like that's um, – and then, of course, on the – just on the free agent side, I feel like it might be the Brewers that could, you know, make some noise here at the winter meetings and try and uh, improve that team, try and get a, you know, a stalwart in the rotation that they've needed for a while now. Jordan. Um, I feel like, while well, Jerry DePoto sitting in a room with dozens of other GMs could never be for a quiet place in any scenario. I feel like – I'm going to say this again, but the Phillies, they're linked to literally probably everybody in the world at this point for them to come sign. And if they're linked to everybody in the world, they got to talk to everybody in the world. And if they got to talk to everybody in the world, Matt Clentock's going to have one hectic <laughs> four days, four or five days. 
and Evan. Uh, so a, a safe cop-out would be Seattle Mariners, um, which I agree with. But you know what? It's been way too quiet in Chicago on the Cubs oh, side. Gosh. Way too quiet <laughs> for the Cubs. And They don't have any money I to spend. The, I, I know, I know. And it's, it, it's, it's definitely an interesting situation, but I think it is way too quiet. And something's going to happen with the Chicago Cubs during the winter meetings. I I don't know. I just Evan, have a hunch. you're on the wrong. Laz is not happy Evan, about you're that. on the wrong side of town. <laughs> hey man, I I I support the White Sox. I enjoy what you guys are doing. All right, we'll leave, we'll leave it at the compliment before someone else says something cruel. <laughs> We're gonna throw in our first Twitter question here from our very own Dennis Ackerman to finish up our little winter meetings preview. What under the radar team has the best shot at one of the major free agents left? Um. Well. Don't everyone pick your favorite team? Well, I think <laughs> what under the radar? I think that the Los Angeles Dodgers, while they have money to spend, they've really been sort of quiet so far this off season. You haven't really heard many things coming out of Los Angeles after the Clayton Kershaw resigning, and I feel like Bryce Harper could maybe be the beneficiary of Magic Johnson's woo power. You saw what he did to LeBron James. While, while while it's true that like I think Bryce could go elsewhere, such as Chicago or Philadelphia, there is something special about Los Angeles and the possibilities not only on the field but off the field because LA is a city that there's Hollywood. There's so many celebrities there, and if Bryce Harper is on the cover of MLB The Show, if he wants to pursue anything outside of baseball or live close to his home. I think he could go to the Dodgers, considering the Dodgers do have the money to spend for Bryce Harper. Um, I would say, I mean, I, I know that the White Sox are like in on everyone, though I would, I would still see that as an upset if they get one of the big two. But I would say the Braves on Machado. I, I, I just think that they're a, they're they are having so many big moves between the Mets, the Phillies, the Nationals, that they need to get a big name and just really push themselves over the top of those guys. Yeah, I, I can make an agreement there on the Braves because um, I feel like they're definitely not done. Um, while I don't think Machado is a likely option, um, maybe because they already have Donaldson and then, of course, you got Camargo and then you got Bansby Swanson there still with shortstop. Um, there could be a chance that happens, but I don't think it's – going to be Machado, it's going to be someone like Dallas Keupel, or they'll try and make a trade for Real Muto or someone like that. Yeah. Um, another team, like I said before, the Brewers, I feel like, um, like I said, they still need that arm and rotation because after Jimmy Nelson, uh, he's he's coming back next year, but they've been the entire 2018 season without him. And then, of course, uh, Wade Malley is now gone. So you look at that, they're going to be fresh on the tail of any of the free agent starters like Charlie Morton, Keuchel, um, anyone like that that um, could definitely bring them valuable innings to the top of their rotation because I think right now the top rotation arm they have um, I'm going to go check their depth chart here I know they have um, I think right now it has uh, Chassin as their top arm in rotation right now Fellas, I think the Tampa Bay Rays will and should 
signed Nelson Cruz as their DH. I know it's been a popular link, but I think this needs to happen. I think it needs to happen for one or two years because they can afford it at the moment. Even though they're a small market team, Nelson probably won't cost that much. And he'll fill a hole. He'll help them get over the hump. They were a great team last year, and I think they have a lot of potential. And Not enough people are talking about the Tampa Bay Rays, and I think that Cruz could be a good fit. Good. There's a good uh, transition for you. The Tampa Bay Rays are a great way to transition into our next segment that gets a little bit away from the free agents. Jason Stark wrote an article recently. I think it was published today. He has reignited the conversation over banning the shift. Here's a little bit of a excerpt from the article he wrote. This isn't all that the shift's doing, obviously. It's a product, largely, of the shift epidemic, plus the launch angle epidemic, plus the strikeout epidemic. But you can make a case that all of those are related developments, and there are people in the game who emphatically are making that case, though not everybody agrees with them. So, in our current event topic of the podcast, per se, we get the general logic behind those who want to ban the shift. Having all those players stacked on one side leads to players trying to hit the ball over the shift. Launch angle goes up, strikeouts go up, we get the game we have today. So we get why they're doing it. But does it make sense? No. I just think that it's a strategy. There's At this point in baseball, a lot of strategy has been taking, taken out of the game. So I think that it's a strategy and it works. And to the point that pe- people don't like the shift because they think that there's so many strikeouts because of it because they're only trying to hit home runs and all that. If you give a guy like Joey Gallo the freedom to not have to worry about pulling the ball, he's just going to go for more strikeouts. I'm, I'm sorry, for more home runs. He's just going to hit for power even more. So I don't think that if the old school baseball people that want – that they think that banning the shift will get more, I don't know if they think that there will be more spray hitters. or like The only thing banning the shift will do is make more guys pull. It'll just create more pull hitters like Joey Gallo, who don't, and it'll just help their averages go up. Yeah, and, and I want to go back to, you said something about spray hitters. Uh, I saw from our very own uh, Jeremy Frank, uh, our faithful leader if i could say that um i saw something he said about the spray hitters and how he was um talking on twitter i'm going to bring up this uh tweet here to try and go through it if i can find it um but it in a way he said the reason i don't believe banning the shift will work is because the players the shift protects is the spray hitters by keeping the guys who pull the ball in check uh in quotations the guys who are three true outcome prone the shift allows for spray hitters to be successful and that personally in my mind is something i'd rather see um just in the game itself i just find it more interesting to have someone trying to beat the shift i feel like it's more creative it's more strategic and in my opinion if you can't beat the shift don't complain about it you got to adjust to the shift you got to go ahead and try and at all costs you can if you if there's no third baseman just put just drop a damn bunt down the line you run that shit out i don't I, don't complain when you have ways to um 
correct yourself, change yourself, try and adjust to that shift so that way um, you can be a more successful hitter and you'll be able to, you know, not be the pool hitter that everyone wants you to be. Well, so a, a, a few things on that. One, very difficult to bunt down the line when a guy's throwing 98, 100 all the time. Extremely difficult. With movement. Yeah. And and um, all of these power hitters, like like imagine Joey Gallo. Joey Gallo right now um, is a power hitter. Joey, Joey Gallo in college in the minor leagues was a power hitter. Joey Gallo has probably never bunted in his life. And if he has, he's probably done it like 10 times because he's better off just swinging. It's so hard to learn that as a major leaguer, especially when these guys are throwing 100, right? Yeah, to your point about being a shift, Greg Bird did nothing good for the Yankees last year except he had maybe three or four bunt singles against the shift. And, like, when guys do that, just why don't guys do that more? It's If you have any bit of speed, just learn how to get a nice bunt down the line and you're going to beat it out as long as it goes far enough away. So this, I, I think the points you guys are bringing up are some of the very common ones. You know, they can't just adjust to hitting a 98-mile-an-hour fastball with movement and just bunt it down the line. It's not that easy. We get it. But at the same time, are we rewarding stubbornness to not even try? But let's play devil's advocate and support a ban on shifting. What does this rule look like? How do we build this rule? So, yeah, um, I saw Joel Sherman posted something out today on Wednesday that he would be in favor of having an MLB put a rule in where at least two infielders have to be on either side of the second base bag at all times. And I, the more I think about it, the more I actually like the idea because, number one, it'll get rid of some of the shifting, not all of the shifting. If a team really wants to, they can put their right fielder very shallow where the shift would usually be right now shift the center and left field over for a left-handed hitter and have left field open. And the chances that Joey Gallo or uh, Ryan Howard back in the day hit a pop fly to left field that's not a home run is extremely low. And, I mean, yeah, Major League Baseball is all about the fans, the fans, the fans, the fans. And it's true because the fans make the revenue for the – organization for each ball club and without fans there really wouldn't be baseball and I mean without you can say without players there wouldn't be baseball which is a whole different topic for another day but ultimately with attendance being low the MLB should do whatever it must to put more balls in play and have hitters start to learn to work to all fields and when I used to play high school baseball we would have entire two, three-hour practices on practicing, letting the ball get deep, hitting it to the opposite field. To start, just contact to right field, little bloop single, and then start driving it like Aaron Judge. And, I mean, it works. It's not like hitting the ball oppo is proven to be worse than pulling the ball. And, I mean, a lot of strong, powerful hitters like to pull the ball, but maybe it's time that they also have to start to adjust and learn to hit the other way if they want to if they don't want this shift to keep going on. I will say two things in response to that, and then we can move on to our final part where we take some questions from our fans who left some nice notes for us on Twitter. Two things on that. Number one, 
fans, sure, they want to see more balls hit in play. But fans are also complaining about pace of play. What happens with more balls in play? More hits. What happens with more hits? Longer games. So it's still striking that balancing act. The second part is this. Who said that the players... Who, who created the rule that the players stand where they are on the field now? There's no rule that said that. It just started that way way back when, the 1800s, because that's how hitters hit. They were hitting all over the field, so it made sense to spread them out. Baseball is well known for being a game theory, a chess match type thing. So your next move as an infield or an outfield, whatever it might be, is to adjust to how the hitters are hitting. In the 1890s, it was to spread them across the field. In the 2010 era, now it's not so much. I think now, in my personal opinion, as a non-major league hitter, so it doesn't count for much, my opinion is the ball's now back in the hitter's court. You got almost 100-and-something years of hitting the ball wherever you wanted to, squeezing ground balls through when you pulled it. They really shouldn't be hits. Now defenses are adjusting. Now it's your turn to adjust back. That's what makes baseball fun. It's not conventional, which is why people hate it, and I get it. But the chess match, the game theory that goes into baseball, which is part of why people love it so much, gets lost as soon as you start rewarding stubbornness of hitters. That's just my two cents on it. It, it carries no weight. I'm just the host of this podcast. It's nothing uh, too crazy. But let's get to who really matters here, and that's the fans. And I picked four other Twitter questions that I thought would go well with this podcast. If you don't get your question answered today, don't worry. You'll get it answered on a later podcast. And also, speaking about Twitter, respond to the um... – Respond to, would you like to see a shift, Ben, or would you like to let baseball just be as it is? Let us know on Twitter. Alrighty. And with that being said, let's start with Taylor Davis at NavyDog13. Who will the Braves sign to fill the empty outfield spot they have? Uh, I'm going to go with Brantley um, because I saw the link they had earlier in the offseason. I feel like that would be a great spot fit for them because I don't feel like Marquecas is going to resign at all. That's just um, my thought on the idea because even if you have Brantley, he's still a very good hitter. Um, His power is down, obviously. He's had injuries the past couple years, but he had a relatively healthy 2018. He did produce very well. I think his batting average is above 300, close thereabouts. Um. If you sign him to a three-year deal, that that's honestly, in my opinion, that's a very good deal for the Braves going into the future. If you have that veteran presence in the outfield, the young team, I feel that's going to go a long ways to um, helping shape that team for future runs. Um, I said Marcakis because uh, he's coming off of a great year. He's a veteran. We know he can play a very good right field, so you don't have to worry about him in the field. We know, and he he hit around 300 last year. His, oh, I'm sorry, his on base was in the high 300s. So I I think that he would come cheaper than Brantley. I don't think he's better than Brantley. And he, and when I say he'll come cheaper, he won't come 
dirt cheap like he like he probably would have if he was a free agent last year. But I think he'd be a good he didn't he played every game last year. I think he'd be a very good option for the Braves. No risk or very little risk there. So I think that that would be a good move for them. Alrighty. Next question. This comes from Jacob Hale and this got all of us thinking because we kind of read this question. We're like, huh? Is Jose Leclerc a top five reliever in the MLB? Um, I'll start. I'll, I, I don't personally. Jose Leclerc had a good year last year. Probably even better than good last year. He was probably an all-star or deserved to be an all-star if he was not. But top five reliever in baseball, I don't really think he's a shot. I mean. Why? Why? Well, because there's people that's been doing it for longer. There's people that have had better stats, even in Leclerc's one good year, such as Blake Trinian, Josh Hader. They had a Edwin Diaz all had better seasons last year, and it was just their first year. You named three, though. You named three. Yeah, and you also have. (laughs) I'm getting there, Evan. And you also have proven (laughs) relievers, such as like Craig Kimbrell, Dylan Batances, Aroldis Chapman, Kenley Jansen. Even Andrew Miller, who I'd still be in my consideration for top five, even with a down year, who oof, have all oof. put have all taken a load of heavy, heavy bullpen loads and carried their teams. And I just don't think Jose Leclerc can fit it, especially when he's almost at four walks per nine innings. I, especially on his one good year, I I, I just don't see it. So I, I I I don't I don't think he's top five. I agree with you. But I think you're going a lot off a of name value. Um, not a lot of people have heard of Jose Leclerc. A lot of people have heard of Andrew Miller and and, uh, and, and Batances and all that. And they're obviously very good. Um, and you know, I, I know WAR is is tough to weigh for relievers, but he was fourth in F WAR. Um, he did. He had a one five six ERA, a one nine FIP. He, stri- he strikes out thirteen guys per nine. He's definitely among the MLB's elite relievers right now. Whether that means he's top 15, I, I don't know how many elite relievers there are. Maybe there's 15, maybe there's 20, maybe there's 10. I don't know. But he's among them. I would put him in the same conversation as Adam Odovino, Felipe Vasquez. Um, I would put him up there with Juris Familia. Maybe Dylan Batantis. He had Batantis' better history. Leclerc, so Leclerc only pitched 57 innings. I know. Um, but I would put him up there with the elite relievers. I don't know if he's top five. I don't think he's top five. But he's... He's in that top 10% of relievers, 100%. One last closing remark before we move on to the next questions. I mean, you said I went with Andrew Miller based off a namesake, but I can make a solid argument. At less than a 2.02 ERA for one, two, three, four, five years running before this past year. And sure, he was bogged down by injuries. That Does that make him any less better? No. He almost carried 15 strikeouts per nine innings across that while pitching close to 70 innings, 65, 70 innings. I just think that Andrew Miller, you could still put him up there, and I'd want him as a top five reliever in baseball. Oh no, I, I agree completely. That his, his pedigree is outstanding, and it's it's out of this world. Um, but there's a lot of question marks. You know, he's he's 33. Um, he's coming off not the best season. He's coming off a lot of injuries. And honestly, like, like, as a Mets fan, I would I would like for the Mets to sign Andrew Miller. I think that'd be a good um, low risk, high reward signing. But there's a lot of question marks, so we'll see. I'll tell you what. When I started recording this, when we started talking about this, I didn't think we'd be talking about Jose Leclerc tonight. 
So, great question, Jacob. A question I thought we'd be talking about, and it makes sense to after today, and yesterday as well. Alex Cora's thoughts, at Cora's thoughts, is uh, apparently getting a little nervous about his rotation because he asks, does Patrick Corbin give the Nationals the best rotation in baseball? Uh, no, the Indians at the current moment with their starting pitchers have it. And if the Indians trade one, that's a different discussion. But right now, the Cleveland Indians are better. I feel like you could probably make a case for, well, the Indians, obviously, because, I mean, they have four pitchers who had 200-plus strikeouts last year. Um, Kluber, Carrasco, Bauer, um, Clevenger as well. I feel like um, the Mets at this, I wouldn't say the Mets at this current time, maybe. There, there could be a case made there. Um, Boston, you could still make a case for as well. Um, I feel like the Dodgers as well. Um they, I, in my opinion, it is top five because you got, of course, Scherzer, Strasburg. Then you got Corbin in there. And then you bring in Tanner Roark to back up behind that. But then you got a little bit of question mark for that fifth spot in the rotation. Um, I'd say Houston still has it over them because I think that one-two gives them a boost even though they do have Corbin. And Houston, I think in a couple – in like a month or so, will definitely have it if they re-sign, a, if they re-sign Keiko and Morin or just get someone else. Uh, and I do agree that the Indians probably have it, but I, this, the Nationals could, just because Strasburg has been injured and inconsistent, or he's just been injured at least, and Corbin has just had that one big year, but Scherzer's proven, but I think that the Nationals very well could have it in July after we see all these guys pitch, but as of now, I wouldn't give them the best. Alrighty, our last fan question comes from atzinsanity14. Let's talk to Adam about this. Adam, what would the Yankees need to get back in order to consider a trade of Gary Sanchez? A ton. I think, you know, I've seen Remuto for Sanchez. I wouldn't do that. Remuto has two years and Sanchez four. Sanchez had an awful season, one of the worst seasons in Yankees history, actually. But he's, you can't just say that because of that one bad season, that instantly he's not what we saw in 2017 and the end of 2016. And because he had, he's not the best at blocking, okay. But every other aspect of catching, he's an ama- he's, he's um, throwing out runners, he's top of the league. So I think you need a ton to even consider it. Like, I want... You need. A, I would at least want a starter, and I need a replacement for him. I want Real Muto plus. Alrighty, well, fans, thank you for all your questions. And again, for those of you we didn't get to, we will be saving them for later podcasts. Don't worry, they were all excellent questions. If you've made it to this point, thanks for listening to us all the way through. And like we've said before, excited to bring this content to you throughout the off season, into next season, and hopefully very far beyond that. So... For Evan Alvarez, Jordan Sfersky, Adam Koplick, and Tyler Jennings, this is Jordan Lazowski signing off for this first Diamond Digest podcast. Take care, everybody. Talk to you soon.